a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we have a... Deep Conversation. We're having a deep conversation with my good friend, Carl Johnson. Carl Johnson, better known as KJ. Let me give you a bit of a bio on KJ here. He's the director of the C.S. Lewis Institute. I like him already. Big C.S. Lewis fan. KJ grew up in Chicago, Chai Town. He attended the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. That's my homeland. That's the people of my tribe. And served 20 years active duty in the United States Marine Corps as an assault support helicopter pilot and weapons and tactics instructor. I'm already a little scared. He's a veteran of numerous deployments to include operations, enduring freedom in Afghanistan, and multiple humanitarian assistance missions, most notably the Operation Unified Assistance during the 2004 tsunami, where he served as air mission commander for former presidents George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. He retired as a lieutenant colonel in 2012 and returned to Chicago to... Go back to school. The guy went to seminary at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. Excellent, excellent school. KJ holds three master's degrees in military studies. That's one of them. Philosophy, religion, and systematic theology. Are you tired yet? He and his wife, Nydia, live in Chicago. He's gone back home and have two grown daughters. KJ oversees programs that foster discipleship of heart and mind for CSLI, and that's not a division of CSI, but it is a division of the C.S. Lewis Fellows Program. His focus and passion is discipleship, apologetics, and leadership. His desire is to see believers better understand the call to discipleship, to seek the mind of Christ, and to live out their faith, and he's a genuinely cool guy. I like hanging out with him, and I love talking with him, and I think he's a wonderful guy to converse with. So I want you to listen in to this two-part, and this is the first part of a two-part interview, because we talked so long, and it was that we were having so much fun that we blew past our time. Not that we have any time, because it's a podcast, and there are no rules. You can do whatever you want, but... Me, being the great guy that I am, am sensitive to you, the listener, okay? And so we wanted to divide this up, and it's just chock full of information. As I said before, drinking from a fire hose is so true in this instance. And we're talking about everything. Whether we're talking about movies, we're talking about culture, but really what we're talking about is discipleship in the 21st century and what that looks like. So... I invite you to listen in to this fun conversation that I had with my friend KJ, Carl Johnson, as we talk about all things culture and discipleship. Happy listening. KJ, welcome to Apollos Watered. Hey, thanks for having me, Travis. Good to be here. Well, let's just start off. I mean, we we listened to your bio, but you know that's pretty pretty intense. So let's just break it down into the everyday life here for a second. We're gonna do our fast five five things about you, and I'm gonna ask you a question. It may be a this or that, or it may be just a short answer. But five things. Are you ready? You mean helicopter flying isn't part of everyday life? 
No. No, oh, I've never be. even it been in a be. helicopter. I've seen helicopters, but I've never been that's in a helicopter. Pro- that's the problem with America today. We all need our own <laughs> helicopter. <laughs> okay, let's awesome. do it. Here we let's go. Let's do it. Here we go. Mac or PC? Mac. Mac, right. Once you go Mac, you never go back. Netflix or Amazon Prime? Oh, that's a tough one. I am slowly souring on Netflix right now only because uh, I'm not finding some of their originals to be that great, although they still have some good ones. I love Umbrella Academy. I love The Crown and a few other things on there. Stranger Things all day long. Those kids are the same age I was at that time. So, But um, I'm starting to... Actually, I'm becoming more HBO Max. Really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. 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 Wow. Neither one of those then. All right. Star Wars or Marvel? Oh, uh, well, I grew up reading Marvel, so I'm going to have to go Marvel. Star Wars could have been, but they have fumbled the delivery lately, except for the Mandalorian. Mandalorian rocks. Mandalorian uh, does Marvel. rock. Marvel all day. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Here's a good one. I, because you're a Chicago guy, I'm pretty sure I already know your answer, but LeBron or Michael? Oh, no, no contest. MJ all day. He is the goat. <laughs> he is the goat. You know, it was funny. I had a friend of mine who uh, actually provides goats for people in Uganda. And he asked me <laughs> if I wanted to buy a goat and I bought a goat and he goes, what do you want to name it? And I said, Michael Jordan. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, so I, I, I watched Michael play. I went to many Bulls games and I saw the first finals game between MJ and, and, uh, my, and Magic. Oh, wow. That's yep. cool. That's I walked out of there and my voice about. was hoarse. I could barely talk. I'm sure. I'm sure. Now, here we go. Here's the last question. And this is one just going to require you to think just for a second. If you were a store, what kind of store would you be and why? Oh, that's a good one. Um, the first thing that came to my mind is what I'm going with. It would have to be comic book store. Since you planted that in my mind, I miss those days of uh, reading comics when that's all I cared about is the reason I got a job when I was 13 years old cleaning the hallways of my apartment building was that the landlord would give me like five bucks and I would take it down to the comic book store and buy comics. And I remember buying the first issue um, of Luke Cage, Hero for Hire. And it was, the, it was the first issue that they used the name Power Man. It was like issue number 17. So um, that's why I got a job. So I think I'd go back to days of comic books and I would be a comic book store. Okay, that's a new one. I've never had anyone pick a comics book store. So that's that's really interesting. I've learned a lot about you already. Um, and, and that I'm a nerd? I, yes. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, but you're I mean, you've got a huge military background. I mean, if I if I I didn't see this in your bio, but you worked at the Pentagon too, is that right? No, I didn't. I wasn't at the Pentagon. I was near the Pentagon. I worked at headquarters of Marine Corps, which is in Northern Virginia. I spent plenty of time up at the Pentagon, but I managed to dodge that uh, that's like the Death Star. So I was able to stay, <laughs> I was able to stay away from there because that's, um, that can be a painful place to work at times. So well, I'm sure and pretty intense and a lot of stress, but you were, so you're a helicopter pilot. And I mean, we, we read about some of your missions and I'm still trying to get this right. You had actually president George HW Bush in your helicopter. Yeah, but he was former president by then. So the only okay. people that fly the actual president is Marine, Marine one, one. And, Air, yeah. and Air Force one. And, um, I was going to go fly for them, and I ended up taking a different career path. But um, when they are post-presidency, anybody can fly them. So uh, we were in uh, Indonesia, and uh, the well, I was living in Japan at the time, but the tsunami hit right before Christmas 2004. And so we spent that New Year's weekend packing up and heading out, and then I uh, had the opportunity to be uh, air mission commander for those two. Wow. I mean, you got a very... V- 
a, a huge biography. You've been in the military. You're doing discipleship, apologetics. I mean, you master's degrees and a lot of different stuff. I mean, really, what really created your passion for discipleship? And to go from the military into discipleship, what what was the, the correlation there? What made you want to go into discipleship? I mean, what, what about your own journey with Christ? How did you come to know Christ? And then what did God do in you to make you want to go from the military into discipleship ministries? Those don't necessarily seem to go together, but I'm sure that they do in some way. Yeah, well, there is a lot of overlap uh, between military culture and the way we can and should do discipleship. And I don't mean being militaristic and uh, legalistic and rigid, uh, which is stereotypes of the military, which those aren't always true. Um, but the way we mentor and pull up the next generation and the way we do uh, leadership, like servant leadership. But uh, starting backwards, the way I got into discipleship was while I was still active duty in the Marine Corps and I was stationed at, the, at headquarters Marine Corps in Northern Virginia, I got involved with the C.S. Lewis Institute and participated in their one-year discipleship program. And it was what I call a hinge moment in my life that helped me to see discipleship for what it really is. Um, so uh, going backwards from there, I basically grew up here in Chicago, grew up in a, a solid church. I grew up at Moody Church. Um, I was 10 years old when Pastor Erwin Lutzer started there. So, you know, I had pretty solid preaching from a young kid, but um, I wrestled with my faith. I took it seriously in my, you know, in my teens. And uh, I still yet did the crazy college kid thing and went off on my own path and, you know, partied and did all that silly stuff. Um, and then when I came back, I tried very hard to live a faithful Christian life, but I just had such a hard time doing it. And I had no guidance. And I looked back and I realized, you know, when I was 37 or 38, about the time I went into this this discipleship program, I had never, I realized I'd never been discipled and never been mentored. I'd never had anyone do that for me. And so this program was exactly what I'd been praying for. And th there God gifted me with one of the best mentors I could have ever had. And he's been mentoring for me for the past uh, 11 or 12 years now. And hmm. it has just been um, a whole different world since then. And so I kind of made a commitment while I was in that program. I'm like, when I get out of the Marine Corps, Nobody should ever have to wrestle with discipleship like this again. I mean, why did nobody ever tell me that this is what the what the life, what life in Christ is like? Mm. And, and I mean, what what were those things? I mean, what was the program that you were in? Describe that program to us. You said you were in a one year intensive program, and what did you learn in that program that really helped solidify your walk with Jesus and what it meant to be a follower of Christ? Yeah. Well, so it might be worth giving just a tad bit of history. So the C.S. Lewis Institute has been in D.C. since 1976, and it was founded by two men, one of, one of whom was a friend of C.S. Lewis. And they named the Institute after Lewis because they looked at him as an example of what a modern-day disciple might look like, somebody fully engaged in heart and mind in living out their faith in a, a so-called secular vocation. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't mm -hmm. a, a clergyman. So, um, 20 years ago, they started a program called the C.S. Lewis Fellows Program, which is a one-year intentional and a bit intensive discipleship program where they walk you through, in a sense, the basics of the Christian life. But you get to marinate in these different themes each month where you plumb the depths in ways that you may not in your typical church small group because you spend maybe six or eight weeks on something, if you're actually in a curriculum at all, too. There's a lot of, a lot of small groups that are just social groups. Mm -hmm. um, and in this program, you kind of break down the art and science of discipleship, and you understand the elements that go into it, 
and it's not, but it's not just an academic exercise because you're actually practicing this, practicing this in a, in a relational setting where you are being discipled and mentored, and you're also discipling and mentoring others in a peer-to-peer situation as well. Um, so it really opened my eyes up to how robust and rich and expanding uh, discipleship should be for all of us. Whereas oftentimes I look at it as, I kind of describe it as a bookshelf. You know how we think in mental categories. Mm-hmm. And if each book on that shelf is a category, you might have a, a book for apologetics and you might have a book for systematic theology and you might have a book for missions and one for um, uh, some sort of you know justice or something, whatever else the church does. Mm-hmm. Um, all too often, discipleship is another book on the shelf when really in reality, discipleship should be the bookshelf. And all of those other things can be means of living out your discipleship. God does call us to specific areas of, 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 of life. You know, you may be called to work with inner city kids. You might be called to be a teacher or work in the business area, but those are all means avenues of living out your discipleship. And too often we look at discipleship as just sort of one other component. And in which case, then we leave it to those who are called to do it, but we're all called to make disciples and be disciples. Why, why do you think we have such a hard time with discipleship? I mean, we have, there was a study that just came out and it was released. There was an article, actually, an article through the Christian Post where they were lamenting the fact that biblical illiteracy um, or biblical literacy is at an all time low. And people are biblically illiterate, but yet we have more resources than we've ever had before. Why do we have such a drop off between the resources and the fact that people aren't growing in their discipleship with Jesus? Why, what, what's the deal? Why do we have such a drop off between those two things? Oh, uh, wow. Um, there's a lot that we could probably try to point to in different directions. I think one of them, I mean, let's just say we have more resources. We can be overwhelmed. It's sort of like the internet. We have mm-hmm. so much, we don't know where to start. We mm-hmm. also are increasingly distracted these days. And, um, uh, we're overcome by the tyranny of the urgent and busyness. Um, and busyness is a, is a, is a modern day form of slothfulness because it keeps you from doing the deep work that we do need to be doing in discipleship. I think it also comes, um, and, and let me, let me preface this by saying, I'm not necessarily trying to throw rocks at the church because the church has its own, its own challenges. Churches mm-hmm. are many times under-resourced, undermanned, um, yep. underappreciated. Um, you know, as a friend of mine once said, it's hard to be a leader these days because followers are so fickle. And so, um, there are burdens and pressures put on, on, on our, uh, our leaders in the church that sometimes sadly facilitate these things, but they're not necessarily causal. Um, but I think seminaries sometimes don't do as great a job at really unpacking what, you know, unpacking a good theology of discipleship. Um, when I went to seminary, I actually by then had developed a fairly robust theology of discipleship, thanks to my mentor, because that's what he's, you know, dedicated his life to. And I don't think there are many people who uh, understand discipleship quite as well as he does. But um, you're you're often getting things through soda straws, and and in and, and there are these silos of information in a seminary, and it's just like you know you went to seminary and you were a pastor. Mm-hmm. Did they really prepare you how to handle some of the problems? whether they were on the business end of things or some of the personnel things that you had to deal with? No, probably not. No. You know, basic leadership wasn't there. So this is one of those, those things I don't think they always prepare folks for. Um, and so we fall lockstep into things like program, programmatic mindsets and things mm-hmm. like that. And, and it's hard to get people just to commit because 
discipleship requires commitment and sacrifice. You know, you bring up a really good point, and I think about just seminary curriculums, and I know that they're constantly shifting because I think seminaries are trying to find the ways to help prepare pastors, and and it's never going to be exhaustive because there are situations that you're going to face mm-hmm. uh, that you just don't know what to do. I mean, myself, I remember having to deal with protesters for something. We had some people that came up to protest, and I'm like, I don't remember taking a class in this. And then because we were a multi-ethnic church, we had things going on where we'd have different cultures come to us and say, uh, we want to have a dowry negotiation. And I thought, what in the world is that? And and they had two families that were from Africa where one young man wanted to marry a young woman. And this is in Aurora, Illinois, where they went back oh, and wow. forth for, for two and a half hours on how many cows the daughter was worth. And I thought, I never took this class. <laughs> I, ne- I never <laughs> took a class on the dowry negotiation. But it is. Pastoral ministry is challenging. And I think you're right with the the, the business end side of it. And I know after interacting with some of the search firms that are placing pastors, they said that 50% of their placements now are non-Bible college or non-seminary degreed people uh, because they're coming in with business backgrounds and they know how to handle that. Whereas a lot of the different pastors don't, but I think that is leading in a very mm-hmm. different direction that makes me quite alarmed if you don't have the theological knowledge to be able to handle some of these issues. And it goes back to basics of discipleship. I think some of the churches that I've seen and you're seeing within the megachurch right now, there's a shift that's going on. And I've talked to some megachurch leaders where they said, we recognize that the future of the church is not bigger and more programmatic. We want to get smaller and we want to really build disciples instead of just get the crowd. And I think that's a good thing. It's a good shift. But I still wonder, like, what is it because we're so distracted? And, and if that's the case, how do we try to fix that? I mean, what can we do? Because cell phones are here to stay. Um, yeah. And the smartphones are there. I know I struggle with this in my own home with my kids. Uh, I remember when my wife and I first got married, I said, I don't want my kids to have a TV in their room. But yet they get a phone and, it, it, and it's almost as if they it's it's part and parcel of their requirement now by the time they're about 12. It seems like, and I know parents disagree on what age you should have or not have, but I know that with my kids, especially now with COVID, that technology part has even increased exponentially. So how do we navigate that within our discipleship uh, as we're trying to figure out what to do with these different technological things that seem to be assaulting us at every turn? What do you think on that? Well, maybe my cynical slip will show here a little bit, but I know uh, a lot of churches are saying they want to make disciples and get away from programs. But if I've I've been inside a number of churches and, and I kind of play discipleship consultant in a lot of cases, and a lot of churches will say that, but then they go back to the old ways of programs because programs are easy. They're cookie cutter in a lot of ways, and they're easy to put on a calendar and plan out. And that's something that... Um, a friend of mine who wrote Transforming Discipleship, Greg Ogden, he wrote about that. It's a programmatic mindset. Um, but let me let me also steer in a slightly different direction here too, because the, sure. this is part of the burden placed on the pastors um, in this process. Um, and Greg Ogden said this as well, and this is what got me going because um, coming out of 20 years uh, as an officer in the Marine Corps, you know, and retiring as a lieutenant colonel, leadership was a really important thing in our job. I mean, you, you are only going to get promoted so far based on your skill in your, in your particular job. You know, I could be the world's greatest helicopter pilot, but if I was a terrible leader, I wasn't going to probably make it past much past the rank of captain. Um, 
you really get promoted on your leadership in the Marine Corps. And so I jealously guard that concept. But at the same time, I feel like in the church, we've made a little bit of um, maybe not quite an idol, but it's a distraction. And Greg Ogden said that the church doesn't have a leadership problem. It has a discipleship problem. Mm. And when he said that, I read that in, the, in his book, Transforming Discipleship. It, I, I just, it sent me on this little rabbit trail of thought. And I've been pondering that for a while. And it's true because when I started my training in, in the Marine Corps, and this is really true for any military service, they don't throw you into leadership right away. You got to learn how to follow orders. You got to learn to follow before you can learn to lead. And that's discipleship, right? We're supposed to be followers of Christ. And what I'm seeing these days is, so let's just say, um, you know, you're still a pastor in your church and I have just moved into the neighborhood and mm-hmm. I, I show up and I'm really hungry and I'm eager and I'm kind of a sponge and you, you know, you need all the help you can get because you're a pastor. No matter how many, no matter how big or small your church is, you probably don't have enough people to handle the demand and the requirement. And so you see me and go, ooh, this is a guy we can work with. And so you see some level of spiritual maturity in me, maybe, um, or at least spiritual hunger is a better way of saying it in some initiative. And so you start putting me in, in positions of leadership without really discipling me. And I may not cultivate that spiritual maturity and my spiritual formation may not match my hunger. And next thing I know, I'm in a position of leadership. I'm assuming I know more than I do. And now we get, we get uh, situations set up where I'm primed to teach error or some other downfall, or I become a yes man in a very toxic church leadership situation. That's an extreme area. But what I see more and more is bib, uh, elders and deacons, whatever your church polity is, who are not as biblically qualified as they should be. And you should have some ability to teach and mentor and disciple the congregation because it can't all fall on the pastor. Because as a pastor, you know that your attention is taken up with a lot of the problems and you're not able to spend time with all the really quote unquote healthy Christians and disciple them into further growth and things like that. So I think there's there needs to be, I think that getting smaller approach is correct. And I think that's what we need to do. And what we have to recognize is you're going to make disciples a few at a time. You're not going to mass produce them. And you can't you can't create a, a conveyor belt of programs and have disciples pop out at the end of 10 weeks or six weeks or whatever it is. Some people are going to take years to get to the same point that someone else can get to in 12 months. Mm. You can't synchronize spiritual growth. Yeah, I, I've often said that spiritual growth is more like a crock pot than a microwave. Mm-hmm. It, it, it takes a long time to simmer, and it differs between the person and the individual. And and oftentimes, I still hear people say, "Oh, I get done with this this program, and I'm mature." And then they throw around this word of maturity, and it usually drives me nuts because oftentimes when I hear people talk about maturity, and this isn't always the case, but usually those are the people that are not mature, or they use it as a means of controlling other people. They want to show that they are the super spiritual person rather than getting down to what, you know, what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And they think that discipleship is a program. And my, my thing on discipleship is it, it's becoming, it's looking more like Jesus. You know, yes. your disciple is a follower and it's not always a program. I mean, programs are great. Okay. They're, they're great, but they don't, they don't mature. I mean, they help mature the person. They're just the, the process by which we employ. But even then, it's not just because you get through a program doesn't mean that you're a mature disciple. Uh, right. They're a great more, tool. Yeah. I mean, any more than getting a college degree means that you're smart. I mean, it means that you <laughs> learned how to take a test. I mean, we've both been through educational systems where we know that you can you can take a test. And I've worked with a lot of people, very smart people that don't have college degrees. And mm-hmm. 
you learn that, wait a minute, it's just the, the, it's a tool. It's a tool. It's a process. But I think we do have a very inadequate or faulty view of what discipleship is. And when, and whenever we throw this word disciple, I mean, how do you define what a disciple is? right now, like in your mind, as you're working with, uh, working with people and you're seeing, okay, what is a disciple and how do you define it? Let's, let's, let's go there for a minute. Yeah. Um, l- let me say before I define it, that, um, programs, I've seen excellent programs, well-crafted programs fail because the vision behind them is inadequate because they expect the program to do all the work. And I've seen mediocre plans succeed because the vision and the heart and the intent behind them are there. And so I like to say exactly what you said. If if what you're doing is not somehow pointing people to the work and person of Jesus Christ, helping them to become more like him and enjoy the union we have with him through the Holy Spirit, you're wasting your time. Now, that does mean, uh, that does include some more circuitous, indirect ways, like the person who is the hospitality, uh, you know, folks at the church welcoming people. And that does contribute to that, even though you may not think it does. You're welcoming people into the body. So it doesn't always mean a very direct frontline sort of thing. But um, uh, I think I think you're right. Programs are just a tool, and we can't rest too much on them. And uh, to your question with disciple, you know, there's a lot of definitions out there, and I've always tried to craft and cultivate, you know, a really good working one. But one simple way is it's somebody who has turned towards Jesus Christ in repentance, made him Lord and Savior of their life, and follow him to become more like him throughout their life. You know, that's a that's a probably a very simple working definition. Someone who's turned away from their old life and has been made new in Christ and they've dedicated and committed themselves to following him as their lord and savior. And that involves all of their life. It doesn't stop the moment oh, of conversion. Totally and I think we could totally unpack agree. it even a little bit more that one of the deficits in our understanding of discipleship goes back to our deficit in understanding the whole process of conversion as well. Well, and I mean, being familiar with C.S. Lewis, and I, I love how he always defined what repentance is, that it's not a work, it's simply a description of what going back to Jesus looks like. Mm-hmm. And I, I've loved that definition. And looking at that, I, I think, though, when people do think disciple, that they have been conditioned to think of program or classroom. And I think that is a deficient view. And one of the things that I think is a benefit that's coming from COVID is that we have to change that definition. We don't have the classrooms to sit in and go through those classes. How do you think discipleship has been shaped or reshaped because of our current situation in our culture with quarantining and not being able to meet? How has that changed the very process of discipleship in your mind? Well, it's certainly added a layer of challenge because I think you're right. There's a bit of a, of a academic or intellectualism that has been um, the lens by which we look at what discipleship is. We've made it a sort of, you got to learn to make an ascent. And this is something uh, that I was thinking of when you were just talking about, you know, going to college doesn't necessarily make you smart. Going to college, you should be cultivating critical thinking skills, right? Mm-hmm. And and just because someone has a massed amount of knowledge means they've memorized, doesn't mean they've cultivated thinking skills. And in discipleship and our leadership, we should be also be cultivating wisdom and Christ-likeness, even if you can remember and memorize the entire uh, Apostles' Creed and all your church doctrine and things like that. Um, and those things come from a relational setting. I can learn by myself. I mean, I've, I'm sitting in my office and I'm looking at a, the bottom row of my bookshelf to my left, and I see 
systematic theology upon systematic theology right next to each other. I could know all that by myself. I don't need you to help me study that, but I do need you to sharpen and encourage and challenge and admonish and love and pray for me to uh, to help me get into Christ likeness. And I think one of the things that's been it's been a struggle, but I think it's something that we are now missing in this COVID environment is that flesh on flesh person to person mm. interaction. We have tried to mitigate that through Zoom and we've done the best we can, but I think the day that we can all come back together um without fear of uh you know super spreader events and things like that is going to be a wonderful day. I just hope we don't lose that and go back to complacency and take for granted the uh, the communion of saints. I I totally agree with you and that's something that I think that when I hear a lot of um modern Westerners talk about Jesus and they, if you're trying to, to share Jesus with them and they'll say, I like Jesus, I just don't like the church. And I, I've always really bristled at that because I, I understand what they're saying, but at the same time, I look at that as a very deficient way of understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus, because being a follower of Jesus means yes, having Jesus, but he put, places us into a community where we work out this salvation with fear and trembling as we learn how to interact with people that are different than ourselves, that are difficult, that are frustrating, that are incomplete, that make mistakes and say dumb things. I mean, I, I, I go back to the Apostle Paul when he's talking, and I, and I want to say it's in Philippians off the top of my head, I can't remember, where he says, I've been in danger in the street, I've been in danger in the countryside, mm -hmm. I've been stoned, I've been shipwrecked, I've been naked, I've been thirsty. And then he goes, he finishes it off with, and then I have my daily concern for these churches. And, and you think about the reports he's getting, and he's like, well, in Corinth, they don't love each other, and they're abusing the spiritual gifts, and some guy's sleeping with his stepmother. And then in Thessalonica, the guys are quitting their jobs because they believe Jesus is coming back. In Philippi, people are fighting with each other all the time. He's like, ah, you know, in Galatia, they're, they're dealing with the law, and they want to go back to Jewish law. And, 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 uh, and that's where I, I see a lot of Christians talk about having this great life in Jesus, but it, it's almost like this carrot and the stick. Like there's this idea of this ideal that we're chasing of what it means to be a disciple. And I thought, you know, that's just where a lot of guilt and shame come from. And the reality is, is that we're all messy and God mm -hmm. is working though in us. And that's the part of the beauty of it. It's that, yes, we're to strive for perfection. We're to look more and more like Jesus, but we're never going to get this pious utopia that I think many are chasing. And then when they don't reach it, they just go right back to the flesh, and they don't realize that it's a messy discipleship, in many ways a beautiful mess, because God has used that, and he's still going to use that to bring about his kingdom. As D.L. Moody once said, you know, God makes a straight line with a crooked stick. And so I, I think that should be an encouragement to each one of us, and that discipleship is not this perfect, being perfect person, but it's saying, am I looking more like Jesus? as the days and the years go by. I mean, would you agree with that? Would you not agree with that? I mean, what, what do you think about that? Well, I want to mess with you and say you're completely wrong, but no, I completely <laughs> agree. I completely agree. I mean, uh, I, I, we would say in the Marine Corps, we are in violent agreement. Um, uh, well, where do you think these ideas come from? I mean, these, these perfected ideas. Well, I don't know how necessarily the culture and the church got to where we are, but I think of what I hear from more of our younger generation, and I'm not going to use the buzz terms of millennials and all that because I'm not a millennial basher, um, but I do sense a growing 
desire for authenticity. And I've heard that word tossed about. And the thing is, in church, oftentimes we have to put on these masks and these faces, and we can't be messy, which has, I think, in some ways meant we clean up our act when we show up at church, which is kind of translated into before I can come to Christ, I got to clean myself up before I go to Christ, where instead he's the one who washes me white as snow in his righteousness. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I'd have to, you know, I'd I'd want to get someone who's a little more deep in in ecclesiology and and church history on that. But we are where we are. And um, when you do experience in that in the church, it's refreshing. But the problem is sometimes when when you do experience it, it's usually those really radical stories like this guy just came out of some radical gang culture. Or um, the guy who was my mentor, I mean, you know, just a little bit about him, we could probably do a whole nother podcast, but in the 60s, he was a pretty radical racist and um, ended up going to prison for it. And long story short, becomes friends with John Perkins and renounced it all. Those Mm -hmm. are the kinds of stories that you hear like, oh, but stories like regular guys, so to speak, like you and me who are wrestling with regular everyday problems, I can't necessarily walk into any group and feel comfortable saying maybe I wrestle with... um, certain particular sins, I drink too much, or I watch pornography, or whatever it is like that. It is hard to be open and authentic and vulnerable, because we we are where we are, whether we're, it's judgmental, we eat our own, whatever it is, it's so tough. And, and churches aren't the communities like they used to be, too. We commute to churches. You know, though, I'm seeing a shift in that. Um, I, could, I agree, because I remember when I was starting off in the 90s and the 2000s, mm-hmm. and we were hearing about, oh, your community is the people that you commute to or you work with. And I agree with that. But you're seeing, again, a, a shift where I'm seeing a lot more of these, for lack of a better term, micro communities. You're seeing mm-hmm. a lot more house churches that are developing. You're seeing people yeah. kind of turn away from the mega church for a variety of different reasons. Um, and not completely. I mean, Tim Keller said that I don't see the megachurch disappearing completely because there are certain things that a megachurch can do that smaller churches can't. Right. But you're seeing the the rise in many ways of the multi-site and uh, there are smaller churches, but yet they have more of a Presbyterian shared model of leadership. Um, but these, like you said, these regular everyday people are trying to figure out how to grow. And, and, and we judge. They love authenticity and they want to be open. And this is the part though, that I'm, I'm coming up against and I'm really trying to wrestle with as we're talking about, like, for example, the reason people wouldn't want to share is because they would feel shamed at the response of the community they would share too. Right. And so, but what do you do when you have a culture that seemingly has lost its shame and its ability Mm -hmm. to blush where they are the ones that are accepting and receiving. Um, I, I, how do we respond to that? And I know I encountered a, a book the other day from a Ted's prof where he was saying like, hey, let's let's uh, hold off on getting rid of the idea of shame completely because shame can have a restorative purpose when done correctly. Um, but how do we do that? How do we minister in a culture that's lost its idea of shame? I'm glad he said that because I remember while I was at TED's, I was listening to some radio program and a couple of pastors were talking and they were talking very frankly about pastors wrestling with pornographic addictions. And one of the things they talked about was trying to get rid of the shame. And I was like, no, you know, we need to have some level of that. What happened in the garden right after Adam and Eve sinned? And I remember I was in a class with D.A. Carson at the time and I went up to him and I said, hey, look, I just need you to check my thinking. Am I wrong to be alarmed by this statement? And I related to him. He said, no, you're not wrong. Um, we do, I mean, 
we don't want shame in a sense to be a barrier for people to come forward and repent and they're afraid to be open with us. We need to, I think these go back to the sorts of things that make discipleship so central and that, it, that it is the Christian life. And, um, you know, our motto at the Institute is discipleship of the heart and mind. So it's more than the mind. Um, oftentimes the real change happens in us when God does heart surgery on us. And mm -hmm. I think, um, we need to cultivate a community, and this main this is hard to do writ large across the entire church, even in a in a church of you know three hundred or so. But in those small you know groups, fostering those conditions that allow for the Holy Spirit to work in and amongst you, where you can be vulnerable and be transparent and um, uh, share, confess, and be restored. We need to retain and, and recapture that, and we need to teach that so people can do that. We don't want just small groups to be these social gatherings. I mean, socials a, the social component, fellowship's a huge component of discipleship, but mm -hmm. if you're just stopping there, it's just a social club. And so we need, I think, to create those, I hate to use a term like safe space, but those, those secure spaces um, where folks can go back and do that. And, you know, I'm not going to stand up in, in the middle of church and confess these things, but I might do that to you in my small group at some point. So uh, talking about confession, I, I want to start, I want to park there for a second, because I've heard people talk about accountability and the need for accountability. And, I, and I've been a part of a com community, I mean, accountability groups or having an accountability partner. And I'd find that when one would fall in some way or give in to temptation and they would confess the sin and then the other person would just sit there and go, okay, well, that's great. But what do I do now? Like, I don't, I, I don't know what to do next. I, hmm. I, I don't want to condemn you. I want to offer you hope and grace, but yet at the same time, you've repeated this process time and time again, and they just kind of sit there dumbfounded. And they say, what's my next step here? I mean, we, we talk about accountability. I've heard people say about it. And I've heard some people say accountability is not even biblical. And I sit there and I'm looking at them going, I don't know what you're reading. I mean, is there a chapter and verse that says you have to be accountable? Not like that, but there is the idea of confess your sins to one another, pray for one another and do these one another's, greet one another. I mean, there's the idea of mutual accountability. Um but how do you, how do you, what do you do as a discipler in the way that you are, that uh, you are confessing to another person and, and then how do you respond to them? And what, what do you say? Yeah. Or what do you recommend? Uh, well, I think we have, be, we do this in so many areas of, of Christian life and theology. We get reductionistic and we can reduce things. And I think that's one of those areas where discipleship of the church has been reduced to, to accountability groups. I think we've done done that pretty well, but it's so much more than that. And I think we need to recapture maybe, in a sense, a little bit broader understanding of accountability. You know, um, in a in whatever profession you're in, you're accountable to many people, and that doesn't mean a one time event where we're in a small group or a men's group, and I'm you know laying out these these sins and struggles that I have. There's got to be. I, I like to say accountability is not just finger wagging and saying shame on you, Travis, you should have done better or, you know, um, something after the fact. Um, I think there's a proactive, positive and encouraging aspect of accountability where if I know that you struggle, let's just say you've got a, uh, a temper and you're wrestling with something. And I know that today you're going into a situation because we've been talking and we've been journeying with one another and been praying and you're going to some sort of situation, whether it's to confront someone in your family about something, or it's a tough situation at work. 
or I'm praying for you, I shoot you a text, go, hey, Travis, I know you're about to talk to the boss. You've got this, you know, um, those sorts of things, praying for you. I think there's accountability can be done in ways that can lift and encourage you, but also walk with you in this. So later on, I can come back and say, how'd you handle it? Well, I didn't completely keep my cool, KJ, but um, but I didn't do so bad. I think I, you know, I, I caught myself that kind of stuff where I can be praying with you and we can measure your progress and your growth in these things, not to shame you where I'm beating you down. The shame should come from within. I think it should be coming from the conviction of the Holy spirit, but I should be there as a guide where I'm going to unconditionally love you and help you through this. And at times, you know, I could be, um, I could provide perspective going, you know, you're a lot better than you used to be. You might have a bad day and start beating yourself up. Like, man, I'm just never going to get this temper under control. I'd be like, dude, last, you know, last summer, you were losing it at the drop of a hat. All I had to do was say the word politics and you went nuts. Now we can get, you know, 20 minutes into the conversation before I can see your, you know, your, your, fore, your forehead turn red or something like that. Or vice versa. I could say, hey, you know, you've been saying you were working on this, this anger problem. I'm not seeing any change, brother. Are you serious? Mm -hmm. So I think accountability is more than those instances. Uh, but I think, like you said, it's messy and we're afraid to get involved because it's inconvenient. Mm. I don't know if I could agree with you anymore. It, it is inconvenient. It's messy and it, it gets outside and we, and, and at, for myself, I know that there's always the moment where I hear Jesus in my head saying, remove the, the log from your own eye before you get the speck out of your brothers. And I have a tendency to, to look at myself and say, well, I'm not doing so great in this area. How can I call this person out? You know, there's that other side of it. I mean, there's the people that they want to call out and they want to make the judgments all the time on people mm. and use it as a, and sometimes it's not the best. They just do it as a means of spiritual one-upsmanship or spiritual control. But then there's the other side where you go, I don't have all my stuff together. How do I talk to that person? H how do you deal with those two really polarizing or opposite sides of the coin, extreme views? How do you balance those two out? I mean, what do you recommend? Well, I think one thing we have to recapture in the church, um, we going back to reductionism, this is, I'll lean back on, on Greg Ogden here a little bit. He's helped me um, expand my view of discipleship. I think we, he's, he likes to say that we get caught in the Paul Timothy rut. And when we think of discipleship, we think Paul Timothy, one-on-one, one-on-one. And that is a, a critical and important and vital part of discipleship. But it's not the only way to disciple one another. One of the most common and most natural ways is peer-to-peer -peer discipleship, where we gather in groups of three or four people. I mean, it's, you know, if, if we lived in the same neighborhood, you, I bet you and I would probably, you know, go out for coffee a little more regularly. We might have a, you know, a, a second or a third guy with us and hanging out. And in those kinds of situations, it's so much easier to start to be more vulnerable and open and do life with one another. Um, and so I think we need to deliberately recapture those sorts of things because you know, as you're talking about the extremes, I'm thinking, well, how does an alcoholic wrestle with this? He doesn't go to somebody who's perfect and has never wrestled with alcoholism. He goes to AA with a whole bunch of other alcoholics who are there to help him through the struggle. And he's usually given a sponsor, right? Someone who checks in on him. We can carry those sorts of things. So if you're wrestling with anger and we're in a group, you might just be like, KJ, you seem to be a level-headed kind of guy. Can you help me through this? And Yes, I can, because I used to have a pretty good temper myself, and then we can work through those things. And so I think we need to pray and submit to um, authority in one another, but also not lord that authority over in, uh, in 
some unhelpful manipulative kinds of ways. But I think if we're doing it in community, um, that will help avoid those two extremes. You Because do, you don't want, one of the dangers of a one-on-one -on -one setting is if you haven't thoroughly vetted the guy who's mentoring you, you can get in a manipulative situation or just someone who doesn't know what they're doing. Mm. So um, that's why I think in churches investing in mentors is so important. But at the same time, us engaging at the peer-to-peer -peer level is more natural. It's more, it, it, it's more um, convenient and it happens, all, it's already happening. It just means we're being more deliberate. So taking this concept of the peer-to-peer -peer idea, I, I want to back up for a moment because we're talking about that. We're talking about discipleship. We're talking about some three people getting together and they're discussing and trying to help one another grow in their relationship with Jesus. But I, I want to take it even back before that. How do you, before that person becomes a follower of Jesus, I mean, they have to hear the good news of who Jesus is. Right. And I, I, I see this challenge and I, I see when I talk about evangelism with other people and there's this idea of this confrontational evangelism in their mind um, where they're out on the street corner and they're passing out tracks or they're going door to door. And it has this bad connotation that creeps up in their minds, even though we know that's not what evangelism is. But let me ask you this. How do you differentiate between evangelism and discipleship or do you? Uh, that's, you're singing my love language here, man. Um, <laughs> I have, I have bristled at times between when we just say evangelism and discipleship as if they're two completely separate processes. Um, and that's what I try to teach with my folks is try to see the disciple making process as one continued sort of spectrum or process in which there are different sorts of actions along the way, sort of like you know, some people reap, some people sow, some people plant, some people water kind of thing. Um, and this well, is... That's, that's the name of the show, Apollos Water. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, let's water a little bit, baby. Um, yeah, let's water, this, water, let's water. Well, this is a little bit what I was alluding to before when I said how we understand conversion often drives how we understand discipleship. And here I'm leaning on a guy named Stephen Smallman who wrote a book, Beginnings, on this. And he was so helpful in helping me understand this, that you know, we've turned conversion into a transaction. And mm -hmm. it's a process for many people. I mean, the Apostle Paul, when he was confronted on the Damascus Road, um, you know, why are you kicking against the goads? I, I, I read some scholars that seem to think that maybe the Holy Spirit has been working on him for a while. Maybe mm -hmm. some of the persecution he was engaging in of the church was him fighting against it. You know, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, that's speculation. And I'm, I'm not a biblical scholar, so I, I won't die on that hill. But God tends to be working in us all the time. And so uh, discipleship for me, the way I'm thinking of this, is it begins the moment I meet you. I might be discipling you into Christ on the front end of the conversion event, if you want to look at it that way. And I continue to. I mean, I think of, I think of what Jesus was doing with his disciples. I mean, you know, to, to paraphrase, you know, Tim Keller, who talks about when the penny drops, when somebody finally kind of gets that moment. When did the penny drop for some of those disciples? Was it when, you know, uh, Doubting Thomas said, my Lord, my God, you know, or when Jesus said, to whom shall we go? Or I mean, excuse me, Peter, when he said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. I, we don't really know, but he was, he called them into discipleship from the get-go. And, um, and I know that's a unique time period because it was pre-resurrection, but I think if I meet you, um, I'm, I'm looking at you as, as somebody I'm discipling from the get-go because I want to disciple you into Christ. I think that's a helpful way of looking at it. And we could, you know, we could split hairs and count angels on the, uh, the head of a pin and all that between evangelism and discipleship. But I think if we divorce those things too 
too much, then that's where you get this, um, you get those who do evangelism and then leave discipleship to the rest of the people. And then, you know, if the church is like, if the church is like a hospital, mm-hmm. um, what we've done is basically we've got a really, really big maternity ward with lots of baby Christians. And what it really should be is a little more balanced. We should have pediatric departments all the way up to geriatric departments, you know, but all too often we just make a bunch of baby Christians and we're not discipling them into maturity. And so I think we need to recouple those a bit. But isn't that like, I mean, I I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying, but I, there's a lot of churches out there that I think were in that kind of willow model of that seeker sensitive. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I call them birther churches yeah. where they, they are the people that are the maternity wards, but yet they've got a lot of babies around. Now there are some mature Christians that are there and there are people that mm-hmm. are growing and, and I, I'm not saying that, but across the board, I think that that's what they're known for. And I have found, and again, I, I, I don't have necessarily official stat, but just a lot of personal conversations is that people go, they usually leave those churches when they get to a certain level because mm-hmm. they, they feel like they're not getting anything anymore. But yet I see there's the danger of the opposite. Like you and I both know there are other churches that are in our community where they're all about doctrine and they are just doctrine, 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 doctrine. Mm-hmm. And I look at them and I'm like, but who are you reaching? You don't yep. seem to be reaching anybody. I come to your church. Everyone looks like you. They have the same hair, the same clothes, same ethnicity, same culture, same education. And I'm sitting there going, now, that's one thing if that's your community. But that's another thing if your community is something completely different. And then I stop and I go, are you really making disciples? Yep. I mean, you may, you're making your own personal disciples that look like you. But I think discipleship is always continually messy. And I think part of what makes a church so, I don't want to say dramatic or awesome. It's not their program. It's it's not the light show. It's not the celebrity pastor, but it's the transformation of a life. When you have different people from different views and backgrounds coming together, saying we both love Jesus and we have to learn how to work and communicate with one another. Am I off on that? Do you think? No, I think, I think you're right. I think, I think you're right. And I've, I've wrestled with this too, because you know, uh, I don't presume to know exactly how God's economy works all the time. And I do think there's something to, um, you know, if somebody does go to one of those seeker sensitive churches and then they move on, I can see that as a natural progression of growth. And, you know, mm-hmm. I do think certain, you know, just like, um, you have certain giftings and I have certain giftings. I do think there are some churches that are, are uniquely gifted in, in ways that other churches may not be They're, You know, an inner city church may have unique gifts to uh, wrestle with the challenges in their culture and context, whereas um, a suburban or a rural church may have others. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, and so maybe agree. maybe, maybe that's how God's economy works a little bit. I wouldn't have too big of a problem. I do have a problem with what you've described is, you know, if somebody who's been going to Willow for 20 years and hasn't grown and they're still only pretty much a baby Christian. I mean, here's a story I think of, and a friend of mine told me this. Um, and it was himself. He was using, you know, he, he, it's when he was challenged. He was um, an, a fellow Marine officer, and he was an artillery officer, and he went to artillery school. Well, the artillery school is an Army school in um, in Oklahoma, Fort Sill. And he went there to spend uh, whatever it was, six months or a year in artillery school. And when he checked in, it's sort of like when you check into a university, for those of you going to, to college, you know, you've got that big orientation day. Maybe they do it differently nowadays because it's all digital. I'm, I'm going to show my age. But in the old days, you know, you'd have a big <laughs> gymnasium or something fill, full and you'd kind of walk around to the different stations and you'd go, oh, there's the, the horticulture club or the chess club or whatever. And you go join these different things and you find out about campus life. And there's often ministries there too, you know. Well, they do the same thing at these military places. And you've got 
InterVarsity and Crew and all these other guys on military bases as well. And he went up to, I, I can't remember, we'll just say it's Crew. He went up to the Crew table and said, oh man, I'm really interested. I want, I'm a Christian. I want to get in a Bible study. And the, and the, the Crew rep was like, who's an older guy, said, okay, great. Well, where are you living on base? And he goes, oh, I'm living over here. He's like, that's great. We don't have anyone over there yet. We need someone to start a Bible study. Will you do that? And uh, the guy goes, oh, uh, well, I'm not sure I'm ready to lead a Bible study. And he had already told him a little bit about his life, and he'd been a Christian for like 12 years. And the guy said to him, wait a minute, you've been a Christian for 12 years, and you're not ready to lead a Bible study? Tell you what, come back to me when you're serious. And oh. totally left him hanging. And the guy walked away stunned, and he oh, just couldn't sleep ouch. that night. And he went back the next day and said, you know what, you're right, I'll take this on. Instead, wow. the guy could have gone, he could have gone for the numbers going, well, I got somebody, sign him up. No, he went for like 12 years a Christian and you're not ready to lead a Bible study? Come on. So if somebody's in a secret sensitive church like that and they're still only a two or three year baby Christian, I do have a problem with that. And if you got the, 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 the hyper doctrine churches that are all about teaching and purity in their theology, but they're not living out their discipleship, okay, that's, uh, that's a problem too. So I, I, I echo that. I don't know the right solution. Um, I would just want to point them back to the picture of what we see in the New Testament and go, I'm not so sure that's what I'm seeing there. Yeah, I mean, and and a given in that is there, yes, there are people with different personalities and backgrounds and experiences mm -hmm. and not everyone's a mouth. And, you know, we go back to the body of Christ metaphor where we have every, some people are foot, some people just don't have those personalities, but they should have at least the ability to know how to rightly divide the word of truth, right? That's what we're talking about there. A, yes, and I think uh, we need to better equip the saints to do those sorts of things. And again, not everyone's going to be, you know, a lay systematic theologian, but we do need to lean in that direction. And those people will emerge, and then the body itself is healthier, and we'll have the body with, we'll develop antibodies to protect the body from diseases, heresies, and those sorts of things. So I think uh, a church that's seeker sensitive may not have any antibodies sort of, you know, and then you get all sorts of loose theology running around. As we come back to the surface, I hope and pray that you benefited from this conversation as much as we did. We had a good time laughing and discussing discipleship because at the end of the day, we want to sharpen one another and we want to help you saturate your world. And I know many of us out there are trying to do exactly that, trying to figure out how we can navigate this world responsibly and how we can make disciples, how we can have conversations that go beyond the surface. And in our media three-second sound clip world, that's getting increasingly harder to do. And what does discipleship look like? That's what we're trying to figure out, and I know you are too. And I hope that this conversation has helped you take your next step in making disciples who make disciples. And I would encourage you to come back next week as we continue this discussion and probe down even further as we examine some of the factors that keep us from making disciples effectively in our world today, as well as changing some of our mindsets in order to make disciples effectively. We also want to thank Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate, our sponsor. And if you are looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area, then you need to give Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate a call. She loves people. She has years of experience. She's great at what she does. She cares for you and she's sensitive to your needs and she will help you find what you need. I know and I can say this because that's exactly what she did for us. She's my agent. She was attentive to our needs and did everything that we needed to find the home that was best for 
us. So I would recommend giving her a call or text today at 630-201-4664. That's 630-201-4664. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Tell her Travis sent you. And that's it for today, everybody. If this has helped you so that you can saturate your world, then hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review. Interact with us on our Facebook page and share this episode with other people. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Stay watered, everybody.